Nice. <laughs> I like Episode that. Episode 69. <laughs> High five. Oh. Cause 69. <laughs> oh, now we just 69 with our hands. Are you a good witch or a bad bitch? I've been a rebel all my life. We will not remain hidden figures. We have names. Oh, if this naughty to ruse your lips, take your shoulders, take your hips, and let a lady confess I want to be bad. I didn't kid you, did I? Well, now you know. Hi, Deanna. Hey, Han. <laughs> uh, welcome to Good Witches, Bad Bitches, by the way. Yeah. We're a podcast about women. Yep. And anybody who calls themselves a woman pretty much well i mean that's very broad but yeah you know i'm broadly trying. speaking i'm broadly trying speaking that's accurate trying not to be exclusionary you yeah. know what i mean no, that's great yeah mm-hmm. um but yeah so here we are and we do a podcast about women we just learned that this is episode 69 <laughs> so <laughs> and apparently we have you know the hearts of 12 year olds <laughs> Yes. Sometimes. Hearts and minds. Hearts and minds. Teehee. 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 July is, from from what I researched quickly, so I'm sorry if I got this wrong. Oh, no. What did you do? But, yeah. So, I don't think July is any specific, like, heritage month or anything like that. So, we've been just kind of doing our thing. And um, before you jump into... Your person of the day. Yep. Of the week. Of the week. I wanted to read you this thing, which by the time the episode airs, it'll be a few days old. But I am so, I think, I think this controversy is just relevant to our podcast in general. Um, So I watched the first season of Big Little Lies. I have not started watching the second season. I haven't seen a single episode and I would like to. I thought the first season was really good. Um, That's what I've heard. Yeah. And it the cinematic style is very interesting. It's very specific. Yep. Um, like there is an there is a, a very specific style. You can tell. I, anybody watching who isn't like, you know, from a background of cinema studies the way I am and the way Ben are will notice. It was weird structure to that sentence. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, whatever. Everybody can deal My with it. My mom thinks I'm mean to you sometimes. You are mean to me sometimes. But that's okay because you're mean to me a lot. And guess what? I'm not that sensitive about it. No, I'm much more sensitive than you are. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to say anything about that. <clears throat> what do you mean? <laughs> Bye. You know, this is the thing is like, I do like to dish it out. So I have to be able to That's true. take it sometimes. That's very true. Anyway, yes. But so with that, with that said, this uh, article is from IndieWire. And the headline is Big Little Lies, Season 2 Turmoil, Inside Andrea Arnold's Loss of Creative Control. Oh. And so they'll kind of give you some some context. Right from the first episode of Season 2, something has felt slightly disjointed about the second season of Big Little Lies. When the show isn't in the flow of its recognizable style, there is a strange editorial tension. Scenes are choppy, lacking any sense of internal rhythm. And as it turns out, that friction was the product of a behind-the-scenes struggle that grew out of an attempt to remove the style of its director in post-production. Why? When the executive producers and HBO 
approached Andrea Arnold about directing the second season of Big Little Lies, the pitch was simple. They not only wanted the British filmmaker who made American Honey, which had Shia LaBeouf in it, um, oh, yeah. to direct the entire season, they wanted an Andrea Arnold version of the show and all that entailed. And it was directed by one of the executive producers in the first season who sort of created the original look of the show. Um, it wasn't just lip service. From prep through production and into post-production, Arnold was supposed to get free reign. But a significant part of HBO and showrunner David E. Kelly's plan was not shared with Andrea. Uh, let's see. According to a number of sources close to the production, there was a dramatic shift in late 2018 as the show was yanked away from Arnold and creative control was handed over to executive producer and season one director Jean-Marc Vallée. V V A L L E E with mm -hmm. one of those. Yeah. Uh, the goal was Didn't to he direct sharp objects too. Yes. So they they talk a little bit about that. Um, the goal mm -hmm. was to unify the visual style of season one and two. In other words, after all the episodes had been shot, they wanted to take Andrea's work and make it look and feel like the familiar style Valet brought to the hit first season, which won eight of the sixteen Emmys it was nominated for in twenty seventeen. Whoa. According to sources close to the executive producers, it had always been the plan. So basically to take everything she shot and make it look like the first season. So it was unbeknownst to Arnold that Valet would become re-involved in the show. Kelly, whose TV career started in the 1980s writing network shows, is a strong believer that TV is different than movies. Shows have a unified yeah, style. No shit. Yeah, shows have a unified style rather than a d directorial voice. And uh, in working with Valet during the first season, Kelly grew to trust and appreciate the distinct tone and visual style the director brought to his series and entered the second season, seeing it as the established look of the show. When HBO and the show's executive producers were unwilling to wait for Valet, who had committed to sharp objects. Um, mm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, they were basically like, okay, well, we need to start hiring for this and we don't want to wait for that guy. So the creative team behind the show collectively decided to hire Arnold. Well, that's kind of, this is fucked on a whole bunch it's, of political It's all levels. fucked. Uh, so they decided to hire Arnold, whose work they believed, they believed that Valet and his season one team could easily shape into the show's distinctive style in post-production. Valet, who advocated for Arnold, told IndieWire last May that he saw their directorial styles as being cut from the same cloth. We have similar ways of shooting when you look at it, said Valet. She shot handheld, available light. She aims for performances like I did in season one. She is who she is, which I don't know what that means, but the spirit of the other is there. She has individual, you know, perspective. Which is like... He's, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> That's such a fundamental misunderstanding of the difference between Valet and Arnold as visual storytellers was not understood by Valet and the other executive producers has befuddled a number of observers, some even questioning if they had actually watched any of Arnold's films. <laughs> because they are so visually distinct and very different from Valet's style. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's like you just Googled women directors, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. You think they're all sort of interchangeable? Because that's kind of how that reads. Yeah, but um, interchangeable with, you mean all women are interchangeable? Why would, they, why would they single her out? Why would they go, hey, that Andrea person, she shot a movie handheld once. So her style can meld seamlessly into ours and it's not going to be a problem. 
You know what I mean? So that's kind of what they're saying here. In reality, the fiercely independent and singular Arnold was an unconventional choice to take over Big Little Lies. Arnold had success collaborating with TV creator Jill Soloway, directing episodes of Transparent and I Love Dick because the visual style of those shows was, in part, inspired by the poetic realism of Arnold's oeuvre. With Big Little Lies, oeuvre, whatever. No, you said it right. I just wanted to be fancy because we were talking about Velour Trills earlier. You always want to be fancy. With Big Little Lies, Arnold's ability to create emotional immediacy with her raw handheld work marked a departure from Valet's more ponderous floating camera, which emphasized more the gravity of the situation. Yeah. Yet even such a fundamental misjudgment doesn't explain the lack of communication from the producers that followed. Not only was Arnold given free reign, it was never explained to her that the expectation was that her footage would then be shaped by Valet into the show's distinctive style. Sources close to production. How do you do that? Well, that's the question is like they just kind of thought she would come in and, and you know, mm. like they're hiring Andrea Arnold because she's Andrea Arnold. And then theoretically, s- theoretically, and then expecting her to not make work that looks like her work. They want her to make work that looks like Valet's work. But that's not what they said. And they not expressing that just, expectation. They assumed that their work was similar enough. That they that wouldn't they even have, have to say to tell it. her that. Yeah. So crazy. Um, so sources close to the production and Valet tell IndieWire that there was no style Bible laying out the visual rules of the show, which is a, something most TV shows have. They have a style Bible yeah. that everybody uses. Yeah. Um, and Arnold was allowed to hire her own creative team, including switching the show's cinematographers. Like, what the fuck were they thinking? Even more remarkable, Valet and Arnold never spoke, nor was there ever a clear showrunner or creative producer who Arnold was answerable to on set. I mean, it it goes on for a little bit longer, but like so weird. It's kind of insane. And a lot of people having brought that to light are kind of like, do you like what was the purpose? Well, then what the fuck you was know? the showrunner doing this whole time? Right. Because that's the, that's, well. Well, they weren't on set, but they were in the writer's room, I guess. Yeah, but. But I don't know. But the point of the job of a showrunner is to keep. Run the show. A, a show cohesive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because frequently, I mean, it's, it. this is becoming more uh, uh, in fashion now is to have one director do every episode of a season. Right. But generally, like. TV has different directors for different episodes. And right. so therefore it is the job of the showrunner, in my opinion, to help keep it a cohesive style mm-hmm. because every yeah. director has a different style. Right. I like, don't think a lot of people realize that. I didn't until I started working in TV, but yeah. And I think that when you're doing things like a lot of HBO shows and Netflix shows um, that they're filmed more like movies and so they bring a lot of movie directors on to direct entire seasons yeah like you're doing that for a reason so if you want to have a very specific distinctive style for your show you need to convey that in your show bible you need to convey that to the person you're hiring yeah it's so so weird to be like, let's hire this person because they have a distinctive movie-making style and then try and get rid of that style entirely in editing. Well, it's just weird because it's like... They wouldn't wait for Valet. 
so then they were just like, okay, well, we're going to move on. So mm-hmm. we're dropping you. And we're going to bring on this person. And he's like, fantastic. That sounds wonderful. But then they undercut her, don't even tell her. And then they go, well, ooh, her stuff is... Di- Can you come in and fix it? What's- and make it the same as what you did? Like, fuck no, because I didn't make it. Yeah. Well, it sounds like that was... That was the plan from the beginning because he's an executive producer on the show and his plan the entire time was to come in after shooting sharp objects and like change her work. And so it just I think the the point that a lot of people are bringing up is like, did you do this so that you could say you hire female directors? Is that the only reason that you even tried to take this on? You know what I mean? Like, what was the purpose behind it if it's not just a surface level thing? So, like, Ava DuVernay was getting involved and, you know, lots of female directors were like, um, this isn't how you hire female directors to do stuff if that's what you, like, if you want to have that be a thing you can boast, then you need to actually boast it and, like, stick to it. You can't just be like, oh, we'll hire this woman, but then we'll just secretly go in and change all of her stuff after the fact. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. It's kind of, it's happening right now. And obviously Big Little Lies, the second season is sort of airing uh, now until I think the end of the summer. And so I'm going to have to check it out and see what the heck is going on there. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, the first season is great. I think it'll be interesting to compare. I also think it's interesting that it was meant to be a miniseries and that's it and then now they're like season two go. I know I know <laughs> I mean because it's based it's on gotta a book be a right fucking expensive show oh yeah just because they have movie stars in the main roles yes yes big a-listers yeah huge people I that was wa- in and of itself is expensive not to mention everything else. I know they just brought in Meryl Streep yeah. I mean, what does that <laughs> price tag look like? High. I mean, good God. High. Very high. As fuck. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So that's that, but keep an eye out. Yeah. You know? Are you a good witch or a bad bitch? Let us know by becoming a patron on, on our, our Patreon. Patreon. <laughs> oh, no. Patreon is a service that helps content creators like ourselves keep the ship going and make sure that we're able to cover all the costs that uh, come along with doing our podcast. And the more patrons we get, hopefully the more content we can start creating exclusively for patrons. Yes. So if you are interested in something like that, please become a patron so that we can start creating that content for you. Also, when you become a patron, you will get a shout out on our podcast and we will thank you personally on air. How exciting is that? Very exciting. Yeah, yeah. You can find us at patreon.com slash podcast. So are you ready for this week's lady? I don't know if you are. I don't, I honestly don't know if I am. I have no way of knowing. I just realized that um, I don't know. Now I'm nervous. Do you feel mentally prepared to talk about someone right now? Yes. All right. Do you think she's ready? Ready as I'll ever be. That's good enough. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's valid. All right. All right. Uh, My source is this week, Smithsonian Mag. 
Uh, Wikipedia and Murderpedia. Oh. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh. I'm just full of ridiculousness. Okay. So let's, I'm going to start with a, like a little intro here. Murderpedia.org. Um, Uh-oh. <laughs> on March 28th, 1910... Earl Edward Erdman, what a name, a city of Seattle civil engineer. Also, I love that this is in the Pacific Northwest, which is like rife full of murderers all throughout it history. so is. Um, yes. So this guy, he died of starvation in the Seattle General Hospital. He had kept a diary which detailed a treatment during the preceding weeks that provides an insight into the treatment he was receiving. The following are excerpts from his diary. Ooh. February 1st. Saw the doctor and began treatment on this date. No breakfast, mashed soup dinner, mashed soup supper. February 5th through 7th, one orange breakfast, mashed soup dinner, mashed soup supper. February 8th, one orange breakfast, mashed soup dinner, mashed soup supper. February 9th through 11th, one orange breakfast, strained soup dinner, strained soup supper. February 12th, one orange breakfast, one orange dinner, one orange supper. February 13th, Two orange breakfast, no dinner, no supper. Continues. Basically all like that. Da -da -da -da. February 20th, uh, ate strained juice. Of, so this is 20 days into this. Ate strained juice of two small oranges at 10 a.m. Dizzy all day. Ate strained juice of two small oranges at 5 p.m. Continued. Slept strange but little last juice. night. Mm -hmm. February 26th, did not sleep so very well Friday night. Pain in the right side, just below ribs and back. Pain quit in night. Ate one and a half cups tomato broth at 10.45 a.m. Ate two and a half pump small oranges at 4.30 p.m. Felt better afternoon then for the last week. His diet continued more or less unchanged until his hospitalization on March 28th. He died that afternoon just before his co-worker was able to transfuse blood. Whoa. What did you say he died of? Starvation. Starvation. Mm -hmm. I was like, this sounds like he's starving himself. I totally forgot what you said about his method of death. Yeah, okay. but he started off by consulting a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Today, mm. the little town of Olala, a ferry's ride across Puget Sound from Seattle, is a mostly forgotten place. The handful of dilapidated buildings a testament to the hardscrabble farmers, loggers, and fishermen who once tried to make a living among the blackberry vines and Douglas firs. But in the 1910s, Olala was briefly on the front page of international newspapers for a murder trial the likes of which the region has never seen before or since. At the center of a trial was a woman with a formidable presence and a memorable name, Dr. Linda Hazard. Oh. <laughs> Despite little formal training and a lack of a medical degree, she was licensed by the state of Washington as a fasting specialist. Her methods, while not entirely unique, were extremely unorthodox. Hazard believed that the root of all disease lay in food, specifically too much of it. Quote, appetite is craving. Hunger is desire. Craving is never satisfied, but desire is relieved when want is supplied. She wrote in her self-published 1908 book, Fasting for the Cure of Disease. Wow. The path to true health, Hazard wrote, was to periodically let the digestive system rest through near total fasts of days or more. <laughs> During this time, patients consumed only small servings of vegetable broth, their systems flushed with daily enemas and vigorous massages that nurses said sometimes sounded more like beatings. 
Okay. Yeah. She would basically um, slap your belly over and over and over and over for like an hour. What did she say this accomplished? The slapping? Curing of disease. I got to slap that disease right out of you. Mm -hmm. Despite her harsh methods, locals, including free thinkers and theosophists, embraced her medical theories. One of (laughs) them. Free thinkers. I like that. Again, fucking (laughs) Pacific Northwest. Uh, One of them was Hazard's first known Washington victim, Daisy Maud Hagland, a Norwegian whose immigrant parents once owned Alki Point. After a 50-day fast, 50 days, under Hazard's Jesus. direction, she died on February 26, 1908, at the age of 38. Oh, God. She left behind a three-year-old son, Ivar. Ivar Hagland would go on to make his name and fortune feeding millions of people as the owner of successful seafood restaurants. Apparently, Aww. it's like a big thing out there. But he was three years old when his mom died because God. she starved to death. Ugh. Other victims soon followed. Ida Wilcox in 1908 and Blanche B. Tyndall and Viola Heaton in 1909. Mrs. Maud Whitney succumbed in 1910. When civil engineer Earl Edward Erdman took the cure, she called it the cure, in 1911 and died of starvation three weeks later, the Seattle Daily Times headline read, Woman MD Kills Another Patient. But patients kept on coming. Frank Southard, a law partner in the firm of Morris Southard and Shipley, and C.A. Harrison, publisher of Alaska Yukon Magazine, died under Hazard's care a few months later, along with Ivan Flux, an Englishman who had come to America to buy a ranch and who had fasted for 53 days. It is amazing to me that all of these people would ignore their bodies in favor of her supposed professional advice. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. During his fast, Hazard got control of some of his cash and property, and his family was told that he died with $70 left to his name. No. Oh, shit. So she knew what she was doing. Maybe. Probably. Maybe. Oh, man. I I vacillate frequently between wondering if she genuinely believed her methods and just took advantage of the situation, or if Mm. she was actually nefarious. And and Dane didn't wanted to kill people. It's I mean, a little I, bit of both. Yeah, um, especially because she got she. You said she got possession of like some of his shit. Yeah, but okay, okay, okay. I hear you. Authorities tried to step in when Lewis Elworth Rader, a former legislator and publisher of a magazine called Sound Views, began wasting away. Hazard treated him at the Outlook Hotel in 1911, and health inspectors tried to convince him to leave, but he refused. Oh, God. Hazard spirited him away to a secret location where the 5-foot, 11-inch tall man died weighing less than 100 pounds. Oh, Jesus. The health director of Seattle said he couldn't intervene since Dr. Hazard was licensed and the patients were willing participants in her deadly therapy. She had many loyal (gasps) followers and a commanding personality. Some of her patients were afraid of her and couldn't bring themselves to disobey her, especially probably as they got weaker in, in their constitution. Yeah. Um, but the health director did keep an eye on her in case she treated any children, at which point oh. he would step in. The pattern was becoming distressingly familiar. Patients were put up in a Seattle hotel or in cabins on her Olala property. Autopsy reports listed starvation as the cause of death, unless she performed the autopsy in which <laughs> in which case, anything but starvation would appear as the cause of death. She was allowed to perform autopsies? She was a quote-unquote doctor. What, like, is that? Okay, 
So, and I get that this was a totally different time. Yeah. But the fact that she had no training, like right. her being a licensed fasting specialist or whatever the fuck she was, was that a, was that like a medical license? Or I don't was think it? fasting specialists particularly. I think that that's what she be, that's what she specialized in. But she was like uh, grandfathered into some sort of, oh, you know, wow. The licensing of saying you were a doctor got much more stringent um, in her time, actually. But she was grandfathered in, even though she was not a medical doctor and had no <laughs> medical training. My God! <clears throat> oh my God! Yeah! Wow! This woman performing autopsies is just like, yeah. that's, yeah. Oh my lord. There was one exception to the pattern. In 1909, 26-year-old Eugene Stanley Wakeland's decomposing body was found on the hazard's property. The son of a British lord had died as a result of a bullet to his head, a presumed suicide. <gasps> Linda Hazard had power of attorney over the young man's estate, and she wired his lawyer, complaining she needed more money of his funds to pay his bill at the mortuary. Later, the British vice consul in Tacoma speculated that he had been shot by the hazards who were frustrated to learn that despite his aristocratic family, he was not wealthy. Oh, fuck. But nobody knows for sure. Oh, my God. And she was married? Yep. Jesus. The best remembered of Hazard's patients, however, are a pair of British sisters who were in their 30s named Claire and Dorothea also known as Dora Williamson, the orphan daughters of a well-to-do English army officer, and they definitely were very wealthy. Hmm. Yeah. As Olala-based author Greg Olson explains in his book Starvation Heights, named after the locals' term for Hazard's Institute, the sisters first saw an ad uh, for Hazard's book in a newspaper while staying at the Lush Empress Hotel in Victoria, British Columbia. Though not seriously ill, the pair felt they were suffering from a variety of minor ailments. Dorothea complained of swollen glands and rheumatic pains, while Claire had been told that she had a dropped uterus, which is some fucking garbage. Like, what? There's a whole episode of The Dollop about that's like really ancient (laughs) wording that persisted until like the 1900s, which is insane. Anyway. Uh, They were great believers in what we might today call alternative medicine Mm -hmm. and had already given up both meat and corsets in an attempt to improve their health, which that sounds like it could be valid, except Mm -hmm. for I don't know how like easy it was to get as much protein back then unless you because they didn't really know about protein. So like you would eat beans or whatever. But if you knew if you knew about balancing your diet. Yeah. Yeah. Almost as soon as they learned of Hazard's Institute of Natural Therapeutics in Olala, they became determined to undergo what Claire called Hazard's, quote, most beautiful treatment. Oh, God. The Institute's countryside setting appealed to the sisters almost as much as the purported medical benefits of Hazard's regimen. They dreamed of horses grazing the fields and vegetable broths made with produce fresh from nearby farms. But when the women reached Seattle in February 1911, after signing up for treatment, they were were told the sanitarium in Olala wasn't quite ready. Instead, Hazard set them up in an apartment on Seattle's Capitol Hill, where she began feeding them a broth made from canned tomatoes. A cup of it twice a day and no more. They were subjected to her pummeling massages. And they were given hours-long enemas in the bathtub, which was covered with canvas supports when the girls started to faint during treatment. Uh, 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 
Uh, meanwhile, Dr. Hazard began to make inquiries after the sister's business affairs and offered to store their diamond rings and real estate deeds in her office safe. Oh, how nice. How sweet of her. So, Just keep these safe for you while so you're... So open-hearted and, mm. and kind. Mm -hmm. You're too ill, really, mm -hmm. to look well, after your Someone else yourself. is going to try and take these while you're going uh -huh. through treatment. Yep. Yeah. By the time the Williamson sisters were transferred to the Hazard home in Olala two months later by ambulance, months. Oh they were God. emaciated and delirious. Oh. They each weighed about 70 pounds, according oh, to one worried neighbor. Oh, my God. Family members would have been worried, too, if any of them had known what was going on. But the sisters were used to family disapproving of their health quests and told no one where they were going. Oh. Just before the ambulance set out, Dr. Hazard's private attorney obtained a shaky signature from Claire. It was a codicil to her will, leaving a monthly stipend of 25 pounds sterling per year to the Hazard's Institute, adding that in case of death, she wanted her body cremated under the charge and direction of Linda Hazard. Oh, right. Yeah. That totally makes sense. Mm -hmm. Of course. The only clue something was amiss came in a mysterious cable to their childhood nurse, Margaret Conway, who was then visiting family in Australia. It contained only a few words, but seemed so nonsensical that Margaret immediately bought a ticket on a boat from Sydney, Australia to the Pacific Northwest to check up on the sisters. Good for her. Yep. <laughs> Dr. Hazard's husband, Samuel Hazard, a, formi army, a former army lieutenant who served jail time for bigamy after marrying Linda. Oh, God. <laughs> Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Met Margaret in Vancouver. Aboard the bus to their hotel, Samuel delivered some startling news to her. Claire was dead. As Dr. Hazard later explained it, the culprit was a course of drugs administered to Claire in childhood, which had shrunk her internal organs and caused cirrhosis of the liver. Oh, right. To hear the Hazards tell it, Claire had been too far gone for the beautiful treatment to save her. Ugh. Margaret Conway was not trained as a doctor, but of course could tell something was amiss. Uh, he, 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 yeah. Claire's body, embalmed and on display at the Butterworth Mortuary near Pike Place Market, looked like it belonged to another person. I'm sure. 70 pounds less? That's not what she's saying. Oh. She didn't even think it was Claire. Oh. The hands, facial shape, and color of the hair all looked wrong. Oh. Samuel Hazard also told Margaret that Dora had gone insane. Once in Olala, Margaret discovered that Dora weighed only about 50 pounds. Her oh. bones, uh, her sitting bones protruding so sharply that she couldn't sit down without pain. Oh. But she didn't want to leave Olala, despite the fact that she was clearly starving to death. She was delirious. The horrors revealed in Dora's bedroom were matched by the ones in Hazard's office. The doctor had been appointed the executor of Claire's considerable estate, as well as Dora's guardian for life. Dora had also signed over her power of attorney to Samuel Hazard. Meanwhile, the Hazards had helped themselves to Claire's clothes, household goods, and an estimated $6,000 worth of the sister's diamonds, sapphires, and other jewels. Dr. Okay. Hazard even delivered a report to Margaret concerning Dora's mental state while dressed in one of Claire's robes and hats. So, oh, God. Okay. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I cannot believe I've never heard this story. Yeah. Right? Dorothea immediately... I mean, it's insane. They're, they're psychopaths. Yeah. Or socio... I don't know. I don't know what the proper terminology is. But they are so unfeeling. 
That's so upsetting. Yep. (laughs) Oh, my God. Dorothea immediately begged to be taken away, but the next day withdrew her request and insisted the cure was doing her a world of good. (gasps) Margaret stayed with Dorothea, hoping to convince her to leave. She tried to sneak some rice or flour into her broth. Although the patients were usually separated from each other, they were all let out for a 4th of July celebration. Two of them approached Margaret and begged her to get them out of the place, saying they were prisoners. Margaret got nowhere trying to convince Dr. Hazard to let Dora leave. Dr. Hazard said that she was not free to leave. The Hazards had obtained legal guardianship of Dora. They explained that she would be spending the rest of her life with them. Oh, Jesus. Margaret's position as a servant hindered her. She often felt too timid to contradict those in a class above her, and Hazard was known for her terrible power over people. She seemed to hypnotize them with her booming voice and flashing dark eyes. In fact, some wondered if Hazard's interest in spiritualism, theosophy, I don't know what theosophy is, uh, and the occult had given her strange abilities. Perhaps she hypnotized people into starving themselves to death. Margaret sneaked off the property. Sneaked? That's correct, right? Yes, it, it can is. be, but it, snuck yeah. is also correct. Correct. Okay. Either. Yeah. Yep. She sneaked off the property to cable the sister's uncle, John Herbert, who lived in Portland, and he came to rescue them. Oh. Yeah. Um, the Hazards presented Margaret with a bill for $2,000 <gasps> and said they wouldn't allow Dora to leave without some cash. Her uncle negotiated a smaller ransom of 1000 but it took the involvement of British vice consul in nearby Tacoma named Lucian Agassiz, as well as a murder trial to avenge Claire's death. Really? As Herbert and Agassiz would discover once they started researching the case, Hazard was connected to the deaths of several other wealthy individuals. Hmm. Many had signed large portions of their estates over to her before their deaths. Not suspicious at all. One, former state legislator Louis E. Radar, even owned the property where her sanitarium was located, its original name being Wilderness Heights. Raider died in May 1911 after being moved from a hotel uh, to an undisclosed location when authorities tried to question him. So now her sanitarium is on property of a patient that she cared for who died. I mean, this is, like, organized. Mm. Really fucking organized. For somebody who's just administering, you know, fasting assistance. Yep. This is way beyond. Uh Uh-huh. So on August 15th, 1911, uh, she was arrested on charges of first-degree murder for starving Claire Williamson to death. The following January, her trial opened at the county courthouse in Port Orchard. Spectators crowded the building to hear servants and nurses testify about how the sisters had cried out in pain during their treatment, suffered through enemas lasting for hours. Oh. That is insane to me. No, the that's more, baffling. Every time I hear that, I'm like, ah. Well, it makes me think of like some of the stuff that women suffered during the witch trials that we talked about like way back in October. I mean, that's what it makes me think of. Hold. Okay. Um, Oh, God. Yeah. And then they endured baths that scalded to the touch. Then there was what the prosecution called financial starvation, forged checks, letters, and other fraud that had emptied the Williamson estate. To make matters darker, there were rumors, never proven, that Hazard was in league with the Butterworth mortuary and had switched Claire's body with a healthier one so no one could see just how skeletal the younger Williamson sister had been when Uh she died. Ah. Oh, my God. 
Dr. Hazard said she was being persecuted because she was a successful woman. Nope, she clearly knew. She clearly knows she's wrong. If you have to switch a body out because you know people are going to fucking come after you about it, you know you're wrong. Well, those people don't understand the treatment and they're going to... You see what I mean? Like she she could convince herself that she had like people are going to comment because they don't understand. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, And that her cabal of traditional doctors resent a cabal of traditional doctors resented her success and opposed natural cures. Uh huh. She told reporters, quote, I intend to get on the stand and show up that bunch. They've been playing checkers, but it's my move. I'll show them a thing or two when I get on the stand. Okay. Her lawyer kept her off the stand. (laughs) But the judge admonished her for signaling to witnesses. Oh, like Mm. little hand signals or? Or being like, like telling them to stop (gasps) or telling them they're wrong or threatening them or telling them what to say. Uh, Signaling can be many things. Uh, Besides a damning medical testimony, a complete paper trail, including a forged diary entry saying Claire wanted Linda Hazard to have her diamonds. It was made clear that the hazards were crooks. Oh, my God. But Dr. Hazard had her defenders. No. Including loyal staff members and patients. John Ivar Hagland testified that even though his wife, Daisy, had been Hazard's first Washington victim, he had faith in her and had taken his son, Ivar, for treatment three times a week, even after his wife's death. That was going to be my next question was like, are there patients who didn't die? Yes. That's there are patients who didn't die and swore up and down that her treatment saved them and completely changed their life. No. Mm. Oh, my God. Yeah. Hazard herself always refused to take any responsibility for Claire's death or the deaths of any of her other patients. She believed, as she wrote in Fasting for the Cure of Disease, that death in, in the fast never results from deprivation of food, but is the inevitable consequence of vitality sapped to the last degree by organic imperfection. Okay. In other words, if you died during a fast, you had something that was going to kill you soon anyway. Right, right, yeah. In her mind... The trial was an attack on her because she was a successful woman, obviously, and an attack on her because it was a battle between conventional medicine and more natural methods. (laughs) Other names in the natural health world agreed, and several offered their support during their trial. Henry S. Tanner, a doctor who fasted publicly for 40 days in New York City in 1880, offered to testify in order to, quote, hold up the conventional medical fraternity to the derision of the world. But he was never given the chance to be a witness. Um, probably for the best. Though extreme, Dr. Hazard's fasting practice drew on a well-established lineage. As she noted in her book, Fasting for Health and Spiritual Development is an ancient idea practiced by both yogis and Jesus Christ. The ancient Greeks thought demons could enter the mouth during eating, which helped encourage the idea of fasting for purification. Pythagoras, Moses, and John the Baptist all recognized the spiritual power of the fast, while Cotton Mather thought prayer and fasting would solve the Salem witchcraft epidemic. Oh. So it does have ties. Interesting. To witchcraft and witch hunting. Fascinating. I wasn't sure what you were going (laughs) to, which part you were going to say. Yeah. But man. Oh, God. The practiced experience. Nope. The practice experienced a revival in the late 19th century 
when a doctor named Edward Dewey wrote a book called The True Science of Living, in which he says that, quote, every disease that afflicts mankind develops from more or less habitual eating in excess of the supply of gastric juices. Uh, okay. He also advocated what he called the no breakfast plan. Dewey's patient and later publisher, Charles Haskell, declared himself miraculously cured after a fast, and his own book, Perfect Health, How to Get It and How to Keep It, helped promote the idea of starving yourself for your own good. Uh-huh. Even Upton Sinclair, author of The Jungle, got into the act with his nonfiction book, The Fasting Cure, published in 1911. And the idea of fasting your way into health is still around, of course. Of course. There are juice cleanses, extreme calorie deprivation diets, and also the breatharians who try and live on light and air alone. <laughs> the breatharians. <laughs> still around. Back in 1911, oh, <laughs> the jury in Hazard's trial was unmoved by her claims of politically motivated persecution, and two more of her patients happened to die while she awaited sentencing. Shocker. After a very short period of deliberation, they returned a verdict of manslaughter. The press theorized that if she had been a man, the verdict would have been murder. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Hazard was sentenced to hard labor at the penitentiary in Walla Walla. Whoa. And her medical license was revoked. <laughs> Thank God. Thank God. She didn't earn it to begin with. So uh, for uh. reasons unknown, she was later pardoned by the governor, but her license was never reinstated. Okay. Well, there's small blessings, but I guess. But there's plenty of people even today who, who they're like, I'm not a nutritionist and I don't know shit about, about it, but let me tell you the healthiest way to eat. It's, it's Doctors. so prevalent. Doctors don't have to take nutrition, and yet a lot of them yeah. give advice about nutrition. Correct. <laughs> but even pe I'm just saying that she can still fuck over people yes. without a medical license. Yes, 100 um, percent. No, yeah, people I mean, and, and clearly people would follow her to the grave, you know? Yeah, obviously. Despite their own body being in so much pain. But they thought it. But this is they what, thought it was this a symptom. Is what, this is what today Ugh. when you do juice cleanses and stuff and keto it's like you feel like shit for days and they, they're like it's just the toxins leaving your body and it's like your body has a natural way to detoxify itself that is a nonsensical thing to say like entering ketosis is not the same thing as as detoxifying right ketosis is starvation yes you have starved your body of into glucose. using its fat reserves yeah yes like it literally is starvation yeah. But yeah, we just don't, we really don't frame it. We don't frame it in, in the ways but that. But it's like, if you feel you know, sick on a starvation diet, trust me, it'll pass because it's just yeah. the toxins leaving your body. Power and through it. And that's the same shit why people wouldn't listen to their bodies with yeah. her because Ugh. she's like, that's just previous disease and it's leaving you now because you're being treated. That's so sinister. Yes. Um, she served two years in prison. She fasted in prison to prove the value of her regimen. Oh, of course. Yeah. And then moved to New Zealand to be near supporters. I guess she had like a lot of supporters in New Zealand for some fucking reason. Okay. While there, she operated under the titles of physician, dietitian, and osteopath. Ah, uh, okay. Published another book and made a shitload of money. In 1920, she was able to return to Olala to finally build the sanitarium of her dreams because she finally had a lot of money calling the building a, quote, school for health. Okay. Since the state of Washington had pulled her medical license, that's why she called it a school. Uh, oh. Because mm -hmm. now she was teaching people. She wasn't treating people. She was teaching them. The lavish building included a basement autopsy room 
and she continued starving people to death. The Institute oh. burned to the ground in 1935. Oh, my God. Yep. And three years later, Hazard, then in her early 70s, fell ill and undertook a fast of her own. It failed to restore her health, and she died shortly thereafter of starvation. This is why I'm unsure. Of, right. Because she clearly bought into her own bullshit. The fact that she would do like, it herself. sinister planning, but she's clearly not just willfully, you know... Inform like she she's not just a person who goes I know this is bullshit but I want to take people's money mm-hmm. she to some degree believed it because she yeah. starved to death herself she believed it and she took people's money yes <laughs> she like uh, yeah oh I think it was as a form of insurance because she yeah. knew that if people kept dying if she didn't have money she wouldn't be because people would leave <sighs> did it, did they ever figure out um, about the guy who was shot. Nobody knows. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Today, all that remains of her sanitarium is a seven-foot-tall concrete tower and the ruins of the building's foundation, both now (laughs) choked with ivy. The location of her downtown Seattle offices, the Northern Bank and Trust building at 4th and Pike, still stands. The shoppers and tourists that swarm the streets uh, blissfully unaware of the schemes once plotted above. Today, her books can still be found in natural healing bookstores <gasps> and in downloadable form on the internet. The total number of her victims is unknown, but she can safely be said to have starved at least a dozen people to death. Including herself. Including herself. Whoa. I just can't believe you can still buy her books in natural health bookstores. What, the, what are they thinking? Who's circulating this shit? Who is printing this? And I'm sure it's still in fucking Seattle. Oh, my God. Oh, Seattle, you have such a fucked like up Boulder. weird history. It's like Boulder. Yeah, dude, that is so, so like, messed I'm up. I'm all for natural remedies when they are applicable. So are you. Yeah, I mean, but, yes. But but it's, it's fucking quack science that yeah. gives Ugh. actual natural remedies a fucking bad name. Yep. Yep. And fuck this woman. For the fa- her still everlasting impact in making people believe that starving yourself know, for extended what? periods of time is good for you. I can't even, I just, I can't believe. Like, do we have a problem with overeating in this day and age? Maybe, but that's because of the overprocessing of food and our biological, like, uh, urges to seek out fat, salt, and sugar. And then yeah. we've oversaturated all our food with that stuff. So our brains go, give me more. Yeah. That's a different thing. I learned the other day that sugar is eight times more addictive than cocaine. Yes. Like, that's the shit we're dealing with. Fasting isn't going to cure you of that. No. Just eat better. It's, it's. But Uh, isn't that insane? It's, it is. I'm so baffled by the fact that you can still buy her shit. And also that just like. That's the most haunting part of it. It is that, that there are potentially people out there who have bought her book yesterday. And are just doing tomato broth. (laughs) All day, every day. Uh, uh, Tomato uh, broth and orange. Tomato broth and orange. Yeah. I mean, oh my Lord. Oh, that, I mean, there's so many layers to this. It's so, it's. It's clearly more complicated, like you said, than she's just like a serial killer, you know. But she is a serial but killer. But she is. But she's not. She's not just a person who enjoys killing. Th- I'm sure there's like some sort of sense of of uh, uh, 
like Munchausen's by proxy. Mm -hmm. Like she felt some sort of savior complex by making people sick. Yes. And didn't even realize yeah. that that's what was happening. But then also she wanted to make sure, because if a patient died, they can no longer pay her fees. So she wanted to, to rest control of their estates to make sure that she could keep on living yeah. and doing what she was doing. What happened? Which she had a passion for. What happened to her, her, to her husband? I don't know. Do we know? I was curious if he like stuck by her or. I think he did. That's so crazy. But yeah. Ugh. Also, just like the funny aspect of like he married her and then went to jail for bigamy. <laughs> like, like he was doing way worse shit also. Just, you know. I mean, whatever. But like. Come on. I know. What the hell, dude? You can get a fucking medical license without having a f- medical degree and you're sending people to jail for bigamy. Like, come on. I, that time is so weird. It's so weird. But I mean, I understand the sort of. Uh, legal quandary that they found themselves in because people were willingly there. Right. There's this thing of, of like, well, these people have free will and they've consented to this. You know, they've solicited her services. So, But of course, the benefit for her was that the weaker people become physically, the weaker their wills are. Yep. And when you enter a certain level of starvation, you become absolutely delirious. And when she's going, oh, but this is just this, this and this, it's fine. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting, like we have this or at least as a society, we're beginning to accept this more. um, The truth of this, that like if you are uh, somebody who has been drinking or doing drugs, you are considered impaired and cannot consent. Right. Sure. But we don't have that same thinking when it comes to medical procedures. We have people sign away shit all the time when they are impaired. And we do, there are no laws against that, right? From what I understand, because hospitals do it all the time. Yeah, I just saw this this uh, expose that came out uh, that they were doing gynecological exams on people who didn't need them for medical students, so they could learn. But it was people who were under anesthesia. Yep. Without their consent. Yep. For the purpose of teaching. Yeah. And it's like, what? It's crazy. It's like a two birds, one stone situation. They're like, well, while they're under, we might as well just like shove every like a speculum up their vagina. They'll never know. Yeah. They they'll never know. It's crazy. It's so crazy. And and so it's like, I don't know. It's fascinating to see how that has like evolved and not evolved. You know, yeah. the fact that we still have a, a system where you can obtain signatures from people who are under the influence of something and and that's valid, you yes. know, and you can still sell the books of a woman who went to jail for manslaughter. And who's responsible for the deaths officially of at least tw- 12 people. Right. At least. And you can still buy her book about the methods she used to kill those people. Yep. It's crazy. This world is crazy. <laughs> I am so, I am going to be. Seattle, get it oh together. Oh my God. I'm just going to be thinking about this for too long. It's haunting, right? Yeah. I didn't think I was going to need a beer, but I might need a beer after that. That was <laughs> Me too. That was intense. I was, as I was reading it, I was experiencing all these things, but I didn't realize I was going to experience them in the retelling. <laughs> when you asked me if I was ready, I was just like, oh, I wonder who, what, what bright light we're going to have today. Nope. nope. 
I did a true bad bitch today. I'm so Not glad. Not a good woman. Not even she was framed historically in a bad light, and it may not been as, as bad as we think, which is frequently what we do here. Yep. No, she. it was bad. Yeah. And she, I don't even think she knew it. That, that to me is the element that makes her like almost more fascinating than some of the serial killing women that I've wanted to cover. It's like the fact that she was so awful and didn't even quite realize it possibly. Yeah. I mean, that is so strange. Yeah. Well, thanks for giving me a lot to think about. Yep. <laughs> oh, my God. You're welcome. Oh, Do you my want some God. on this day? I only have a few. Yeah, I do. Um, <laughs> This one's just random. So it's July 17th, right, when this episode drops? Mm-hmm. July 17th, 180. Okay. 180. 12 inhabitants of Cilium near Kasserine, modern-day Tunisia. I just said that British. Tunisia. That's how they say it. Tunisia in North Africa are executed for being Christians. And it's the earliest record of Christianity in that part of the world. Wow. One, eight, zero. One, eight, zero. Man. I mean, it was still a baby. Yeah. Christianity Jesus had only was... died like 150 years prior. And people still needed time to like gather his teachings and walk across the, you know, yeah. the land and. July 17th, 1762, Catherine II becomes Tsar of Russia upon the murder of Peter III. Oh, well, well, well. I don't really know anything beyond that. Um, This one, I had to laugh. July 17th, 1902, Willis Carrier creates the first air conditioner in Buffalo, New York. And I was like, (laughs) of course the first air conditioner was invented in New York because New York in summer is garbage so why don't more buildings have them i don't know Mm, that's the question because it's expensive it is who knows that's so funny and sad to me (laughs) we still don't utilize them Uh uh-huh july 17th 1918 the rms carpathia the ship that rescued 700 survived survivors nope 705 (laughs) survivors I can't. From the RMS Titanic is sunk off Ireland by the German U-boat 55 and five lives are lost. Oh, no. Five's not too, too bad. But I just I thought that was interesting that the ship that rescued the Titanic survivors also sank. But was torpedoed. Um, Yeah. World War One was was a fun time. Um, And this one's fun. Uh, July 17th, 1955, Disneyland is dedicated and opened in Anaheim, California. Aww, what year? 1955. 55, really? Mm-hmm. Wow, I didn't realize. Well, I mean, I guess that makes sense, but geez. Happy birthday, Disneyland. Happy birthday, Disneyland. I've been to you twice this past year. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I know that's very on brand for you right now because you've been so just, interested in theme I've parks. Gone down the Disneyland history rabbit hole. Yeah, and just it was like, ooh, ooh I love that. It's, it's interesting. It's political. It's yeah, it's crazy. It's and interesting. Just the history of a lot of rides is really yeah. cool. Yeah, and, and the reasons that like parks are different in different countries, like yes. the things that are different about them and why. That's to me. That's what's so. Interesting. You mean like how in in uh, one of the Chinese Disneylands, I think it's Hong Kong, uh, they can't have a haunted mansion because they have laws against depiction of the supernatural. Yes. 
So they have Mystic Manor. I love that. Which looks really fucking cool, but it's all, yeah. it's like magical artifacts come to life. And some of them are a little creepy, but it's not haunting. Right. It's magic. Yeah. It's so interesting. That brings it to life, and then it gets contained by the end, by the time you get let off. So funny. Yeah. And it's a trackless ride. Ooh. Sexy. Really cool. Um, because you never know where you're going to go. Oh, my anyway, gosh. I love uh, Disney and theme park history. I love right it. Now. Well, what thanks, are you excited thanks, about? <laughs> I'm excited about, you know, I, I was trying to think about this and it's a lot of abstracts. So it's probably not that interesting. But like we just got back from a week in uh, Colorado and it right. was so rejuvenating. And yeah. so I just I'm still feeling pretty good from that. That's awesome. And I'm, I'm just excited about that because we get so stressed out here. Um, and, you know, I've had some good work news that, like, I can't really share, but it's exciting. Yeah. Things career-wise are, that's you always, know. That's always a good feeling. Moving forward. Yes. Um, oh, actually, there is something I could I could uh, pimp out just for a second. Pimp one out. of my clients, one of my clients' books come came out yesterday on the 16th. It's called Just My Luck by Jennifer Honeyburn. And it is a YA contemporary about a girl who works at a hotel in, in Hawaii. And she's like having terrible luck. And she realizes or she decides that it might be because she's been like stealing little bits and bobs from hotel guests. And so she decides in order to get her luck back, she is going to start Returning trying to them? return these items. Oh, that's cute. And part of the reason is because she wants good luck so that she can, you know, have a have potentially a relationship with somebody she's interested in. So it's very sweet. It's a great summer, like, beach read. And, yeah. you know, yeah, it's fun and I like it. So that came out yesterday. Go check that out. And otherwise, I think that's it. Sweet. Yeah. So uh, should we sign off until next week? I think maybe we should sign off until next week. I'm glad we ended on like a happy note. I know. (laughs) Me too. I know. So hopefully you can take that with you as a listener into the rest of your week. Yes. Take that with you. But never forget Linda Hazard. And on that note, peace out, witches. listening to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is hosted by Deanna Greif. Me. You. And you. (laughs) Hannah Ferguson. And we're produced by Benjamin Garst. Um, You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. Google Play. Google Play. Pretty much anywhere you listen to your podcasts, you can find us there. We're also on social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, GWBB Podcast. You can also email us at gwbbpodcast at gmail.com. We love to receive emails. If you have a story about a woman in your life that you want to hear on air, uh, shoot it over to us. We would love to read it. If you want to help keep us running, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gwbbpodcast. <laughs> Become a patron and help us you know, pay for our hosting. Yeah, Patreon really helps content creators be able to continue to create their content. And it just kind of helps us break even on the costs of producing this podcast. And it would be really awesome if you wanted to help out. If you like it, you can be a part of it. Also, to help us out, you can rate, review, and subscribe. All of, the, all of those things are extremely helpful for us. They help other listeners find us. 
Yeah. Word of mouth, also good. Yeah. <laughs> our website is gwbbpodcast.com. You can find all of our episodes there as well as some other things bubbling out of our witchy cauldron. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is powered by Moon Bounce. Moon Bounce.